Thank you, choir. I love that song, and if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I'm certainly not going to. I always look forward to it. Well, today we're going to continue our study from Second Peter, and uh, we finish chapter number 2. Peter was very firm in his words of criticism towards the false teachers who had come into the church in chapter number 2. He said that they were dominated by desire, that they were rebellious, they despised authority. He said that they were arrogant, they reviled authorities and angels. He said of their teaching that they were destructive heresy. But then when we come to chapter number 3, his tone changes. And now then he becomes tender because he is addressing the saints of God, those who believe in Christ. And he refers to them in his greeting as the beloved. He says that they have a sincere mind. And then he speaks to them about the mockers in the church. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues, just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men." But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now then, as Peter is addressing believers, he begins by calling on them to remember the words in verse number 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So, Simon Peter here is expressing a concern. He is giving a warning. He said, remember the words. The words that were spoken by the prophets, by the Lord Jesus, and by his apostles. He said, remember the words. Now, what was he speaking of? Well, you'll see in verse number 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Now, as you go ahead and read, what Peter is saying is that he was concerned about those in the church who were denying the return of Christ. 
What was their argument for denial? Well, if you look there in verse number 4, he says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. William Barclay wrote, literally their question was, where is the promise of his coming? That was a form of Hebrew expression which implied that the thing asked about didn't exist at all. Now, this is a, a, uh, is commonly found throughout Scripture. A question is being asked for the reason of denying the proposition. So a question then is formed in such a way that will deny the proposition that is being discussed. For instance, you can see that in Malachi 2.17, where is the God of justice? The question then was asked in such a way to deny that there was a God of justice. It's also found in Psalm chapter 42, verse number 3. Where is your God? Now, that was a question that was posed by the heathen, and the purpose for it was to deny the existence of God. We also see it in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 15. Where is the word of the Lord? So this is common in Scripture. It is a way of denying a proposition by asking a particular question, and that is exactly what is being done here. So these mockers were saying, well, the Lord has not come. His coming has been delayed for such a long time that he is not coming. Our fathers have died. Our grandfathers have died. Our great-grandfathers have died. They have all heard the promise of his coming, and things continue as they have always been. In a sense, they were presenting a scientific argument. They examined the evidence and said, he has not come. They applied reason to it and reached a conclusion that he is not going to come. So that was these mockers that were in the church, and that was the concern of Simon Peter. They were saying, he hasn't come. Too much time has passed. Our fathers and our forefathers have died. He has not returned. Therefore, he is not going to return. Have you ever wondered why is it some people are so offended by the idea of the return of Christ? That some people are so hesitant concerning the return of Christ? Well, see, that's these mockers within the church. They denied the fact that Jesus was coming again. Why? Well, look again in verse number 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. You see, they wanted to continue their pursuit of their lustful living. Here's the problem we have. When our lives are in contradiction to the Word of God, we either have to change our lifestyles or we have to change the Word of God. The reason they were denying the return of Jesus is because they wanted to continue to pursue a lifestyle of lust. Now, folks, mockers have always been with us. There have always been those. In the days of Noah, God told Noah that he was going to judge the world. He faithfully preached that message. 
But the people did not listen to the message. They did not accept the message. And I contend that they probably mocked the message because when judgment came, only his family was saved. So there were mockers in Noah's day. There were mockers in Jesus' day. The Bible says there were those who mocked Jesus and they rejected his teaching in Matthew 27, 29. After weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked Jesus. Folks, we have always had mockers, those who mock the Word of God, and we have them today. There are people who say, well, the message of those people is antiquated. It has no place in modern-day society, the things that the Bible says. Surely we have evolved beyond that. And so it has no place today in our society. So they mock it because they say that it is antiquated. They mock the message by saying that those people who believe such things are intolerant. You know the irony to me? is that those who accuse us of being intolerant, I believe, are the most intolerant people in the country. Because they will not tolerate anything that we believe while calling us intolerant. They dismiss the Word of God in what we believe as being ignorant. So we are ignorant for believing in creation. We are ignorant for believing in God. We are ignorant for believing in the divinity of Jesus. All of those things are dismissed. The point that I'm trying to make to you is that there have always been those people in the world who are mockers. And that's what Peter is saying, that mockers will come. And so he gives them a reminder in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Ladies and gentlemen, truth is true whether you accept it or reject it. doesn't matter. Truth is not subjective. It is objective. And so truth, then, is always true. And Simon Peter here is reminding them of this fact because he understood the value of repetition as a teaching tool. Sometimes things have to be said repeatedly. The Apostle Paul said that in Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Simon Peter understood the value of repetition. Sometimes I know that some of you... When I preach, you will write a little date out there by the Scripture. And if I ever preach on that Scripture again, you bring it up to me and say, well, you preached this before. And I say, well, what did I say? You don't have a clue. I mean, it's as if there's only one message in there. But even if it were, in fact, I think it was S.M. Lockridge who said that if it's not worth preaching twice, it's not worth preaching once. So Simon Peter then understood the value of repetition, because sometimes we need to be reminded of the truths of God. The Greeks referred to time which wipes all things out. They were saying that in time, all things are wiped out if you're not reminded. All things are wiped out. Those things that we knew at one time, those things that we believed one time, if we are not reminded and challenged concerning those things, then time wipes them out. Dr. Johnson said, it is sufficiently considered that men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. We need to be reminded of the truth of God's Word. 
Now, Noah warned the people that judgment was coming and that was fulfilled. Jesus has told us that he is going to return and that will be fulfilled. So that's what Simon Peter is doing. He says, I am reminding you of this truth. He also understood the value of a compliment in verse number one. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The word sincere has two possible meanings. It may mean that which is sifted until there is no admixture of chaff left, or it may mean that which is so flawless that it may be held up to the light of the sun. So he was complimenting. He reminded them. He complimented them. He says, now you are good people. You are sincere in your mind. He was reminding them of that fact and of the truth of God's word. Remember the words of the prophets, the Lord, and the apostle. That's how he begins in this chapter. I want you to remember what the prophets have said, what the Lord said, and what the apostles said. Then he talks about the word of God in verse number five. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, what was happening is that the mockers pointed out that the world was orderly, so God would not then intervene in the world to disrupt the order. That's what they were saying. This world is an orderly world. God is not going to intervene in this world that would disrupt that order. But they ignored certain facts. In verse number 5, he says, it escapes their notice. It escapes their notice that God had what? In fact, intervened in this world in the past. It's also of interest to me that how convenient it seems for mockers to escape the notice of certain facts. For instance, uh, I suppose that the theory of evolution is generally accepted in our society, certainly in the education um, world, the academic world. And we all know that there are some serious holes in it. But those are just conveniently ignored and not dealt with. We know what the Bible says about the family, but that is ignored. We know what the Bible says, for instance, about politics, that a person's character is going to shape their policy. We know all those things, but it is so convenient for some people simply to ignore those things. The fact that Peter is saying is that God has intervened in the world before. Now look at verse number five. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, according to Genesis, in the beginning there was a watery chaos. And out of this watery chaos, God created this world. And then God used water to judge the world, in verse number 6. Through which... The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So then, God intervened in this world in the past that was conveniently ignored and judged the world by water out of which the world came. Barclay wrote, you build your hopes on the idea that this is an unchanging universe. 
You are wrong, for the ancient world was formed out of water and was sustained by water, and it perished in the flood. God has intervened in this world in the past, and He will again. Look at verse number 7. But the present heavens and earth by His word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God is going to intervene in this world again and judge it with fire. Barclay said, It is Peter's conviction that as the ancient world was destroyed by water, the present world will be destroyed by fire. Did you know that idea is found throughout Scripture? It is found in Joel chapter 2, verse 30, in Psalm chapter 50, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, and in other places. God has intervened in this world. It might be conveniently ignored, but God has intervened in the world before, and He will do so again. Now, He mentions one fact in verse number 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. The mockers seem to be ignorant of God's past intervention, but Peter points out two facts about God. He said, there's a fact that you need to know, and he gave two facts concerning God. First of all, that God is eternal. In verse number 8b, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is eternal. He is not bound by time, but he works in time. There was a black preacher who said, God never hurries, but he is never late. God is not bound by time, means nothing to him. A thousand years are like a year and a day, and a day is like a thousand years. I know Jim Southern had told me that about his 50-year anniversary, that there were some days seem like a thousand years, but he's not God. That's the way it is with God. Time doesn't mean anything to him. For instance, in creation, God could have created this world instantly. He could have spoken it into existence had, that, had he wanted to. But he took six days. That was his choice. That's what he... Considering the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth announcement was sent out by Isaiah and Micah 700 years before he was born. Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin. Micah said that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. 700 years later, then he was born. And Paul wrote in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. So what we have to understand with God is that God is eternal. And a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It is meaningless to him. So the point that he is making is that Jesus Christ will come, not according to our calendars, but according to God's will. No one knows when Jesus is going to come. We're going to look further next week as we continue and conclude our study in Second Peter. He gets more into the second coming of Christ. But I don't know when Jesus is going to come. I look at the signs. It sure appears to me, and I believe that I'll see the return of Christ within my lifetime. It just looks that way to me, but I don't know. I do know one thing. He's going to come exactly when God has said. The Lord has it all planned, and it's going to happen just like he says. So God is eternal. The second thing is that God is patient. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Now, according to what he is saying, it's that the Lord is patient so that we have opportunity to repent and turn to him. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 33:11. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Folks, God is patient with us. In His grace, He is patient. For instance, in the story of Nineveh, the Lord sent Jonah there to preach the gospel that they might repent of their sins because of His patience with man. Whenever the Lord announced that He was going to send a flood, that He was going to judge the earth, Noah preached a message, a warning, for a hundred and twenty years because of God's patience. And hadn't the Lord been patient with us? Let me ask you, there are some of you, I'm sure, who do not know Jesus as Savior. You've thought about it. One day you plan to commit your life to Christ, but you've not done so, and the Lord has been patient with you. How many times has He given you the opportunity? How many times has the Lord been patient with you, and the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, and you've heard the gospel? The Lord has been patient. That's what Peter's saying. The Lord is patient with us because it is His desire that people are saved. Then he mentions the day of the Lord in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. In spite of the mockers, in spite of the delay, he is saying that God's word is going to be fulfilled, that God will judge this earth. That heaven will pass away. Now, that speaks of the atmosphere. The word heaven that is used there speaks of the atmosphere. He talks about elements destroyed. That refers to something that is broken down into its basic element. This happens when atomic energy is released. God can release atomic energy that is stored up in this world. And he said it will be burned up. Now, in my understanding... That probably is a reference to God's, uh, to man's great works. And God's going to burn them. You know those things that are so important, those buildings that we build, that stands as a testament to our creative ability? They're going to be gone. Those institutions that we found, they're going to be burned up. The companies that have been built, the corporations, all of those great things that man does, they will all be burned up, and Jesus will return. That is prophesied by Daniel and Job. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 14:3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That is the promise of the Lord. When he left this earth, he said, If I go away, I will come again that I might receive you to myself. Now, you think about his coming. First of all, it's going to be personal. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. The Lord's not going to send a search committee back looking for His children. He is going to come. The Bible says that Jesus Christ Himself is going to come back. When He comes, His coming will be visible. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples watched him go, and an angel spoke to the disciples and said, This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. 
Jesus was seen going into heaven. He will be seen coming from heaven. When he comes again, it will be personal. It will be Jesus, the Son of God. When he comes, it will be a visible coming. It will be sudden. In verse number 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's going to be sudden. There's no two-minute warning. When he comes, it'll be like a thief. He'll come suddenly. And it'll be a time of separation. The Bible tells a story that when the Lord comes, is going to be a time of separation. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two will be in bed. One will be taken. One will be left. And that says to me, when the Lord returns, that he is going to take those who are his and leave those who are not. There will be people at work. The Lord will take them. Those who are not will be left. There will be people in the home. Some are saved and some are not. The Lord will take those who are saved and leave those who are not. It will be a time of separation. So Peter is saying that the mockers mock and ridicule the return of Christ. But he will return. He will come. So the question today for you is this. Will you be ready? When he comes, it will be sudden, like a thief. When he comes, it will be personal. Jesus will come. And when he comes, it will be a time of separation. He will take those who know him. Do you know Jesus? Are you prepared? If this were the day that the Lord returned, would you be ready to meet him? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the message that Peter was sharing. That we are to be ready to meet him because he is going to come. Our gracious Father, you have referred to your return as the blessed hope. And it is our blessed hope that one day Jesus is coming. Father, we don't know when that is. You've not told us that. But you've told us that we are to be ready. And I pray, Father, for those today who are not ready. They've never invited Christ to be their Lord and Savior. They've never committed their life to you. Lord, it's my prayer that today they would do so. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand, issue an invitation. Staff members will be standing here to receive you. The choir will be singing. If you're without Christ, the invitation today is to receive him. Let him be the Lord of your life. Prepare for his return because he is coming, no matter what any mocker says. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We hope you'll come. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.